appreciate those songs. I really think that that captures beautifully the sentiment of our heart, purpose for our meeting together, and the reason that we live. This morning, I'd invite you to open up your Bibles with me, if you would, to to, uh, Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. Our text is going to be coming from the first 14 verses of this particular chapter. And as we begin our study this morning, I'll invite you to follow along in your own Bibles as I read that. Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 1. Then Joseph hugged his father's face. He wept over him and kissed him. Joseph instructed the physicians in his service to embalm his father, so the physicians embalmed Israel. They took 40 days, for that is the full time needed for embalming. The Egyptians mourned for him for 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's royal court, If I have found favor in your sight, please say to Pharaoh, My father made me swear an oath. He said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb that I dug for myself there in the land of Canaan. Now, let me go and bury my father, and then I will return. So Pharaoh said, Go and bury your father, just as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials went with him, the senior courtiers of his household, all the senior officials of the land of Egypt, all of Joseph's household, his brothers, and his father's household. But they left the little children and their flocks and herds in the land of Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him, so it was a very large entourage. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad on the other side of the Jordan, they mourned there with very great and bitter sorrow. There Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived in the land saw them mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a very sad occasion for the Egyptians. And that's why its name was called Abil Mizarium, which is beyond the Jordan. So the sons of Jacob did for him just as he had instructed them. His sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre. This is the field that Abraham purchased as a burial plot from Ephron the Hittite. After he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt along with his brothers and all who had accompanied him to bury his father. You know, as we... um, open up this particular text this morning. I'd like for us to do so from an unusual, uh, in an unusual direction. Because what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at this story through three very different, very distinct perspectives. I'm going to suggest to you that there are three different sets of eyes, three different points of view that are witnessing the story that we just played out. And perspective means a lot. The point of view from which you observe something, your perspective on a circumstance can say a lot about it. Let me give you an example real quick from, uh, from my own personal life that uh, I think will really illustrate this well. So the other day I'd been doing some work in the backyard. And if you've been in my home, you know the backyard there. And we have the back steps that come off of the kitchen. And so doing some work out there, the three little boys are playing, doing whatever chaotic little three, or three, uh, three little boys do. And um, when I was uh, walking back down those steps off the porch where I had been working... I'm greeted with their three faces. The first face that I saw was Norman. And his face was 
a combination of shock and fear. Something to that. The second face I saw was Daniel. Daniel's was a look of confusion. You could see the wheels were spinning madly. They hadn't quite caught any traction yet. They hadn't really got the idea together, but it was trying to put something together. It was, it was deep in thought. Royal. <laughs> Royal was a different story altogether. Royal is in the midst of uproarious laughter. He's just, his chubby little face is so squished up that his eyes he can't even see anymore, and he's just bellowing out a laugh. That's my scene. And somewhere in that, I'm supposed to draw a conclusion of what's happening. Well, the next moment, the next moment I felt a, a wash of water fall over the top of me and a ladder clanged past me almost hitting me in the head as it tumbled down the steps. This, the ladder I was using and the work I was doing right there had apparently behind me come tumbling down around me. And in that moment, I finally understood the perspective of what I had just seen. Because to Norman, his concern was for me. He was afraid I was going to get hurt. Daniel was, what is going on here? And Royal was, oh, this is going to be funny. And everybody got a little bit of what they were expecting. You see, that one scene, that one scenario, that one moment was, was typified in three different perspectives, three different point of view, all of which were accurate, all were seeing the same scene, all were witnessing the same experience, and yet the, their point of view made a difference in how they experienced it personally. The story today is the burial of Jacob. That's the story. But what we're going to see is from three different perspectives, three different points of view, that story takes on all different meanings. All different kinds of, of impact go into that particular story. And what I want to do this morning is ask, which of, uh, uh, how can we, from each of these perspectives, draw some understanding of this story that will help us? And how can we, from each of these three perspectives, draw an application that we can apply in our own lives. Let me back up a little bit because if you've not been with us for a few weeks, if you're visiting with us and you don't know where we are in this storyline, it's probably very confusing. Who's, who's Jacob? How did he die? Who's Joseph? What's going on? Where are they? Where is any of this taking place? And so let me just very quickly recap the story for you so that we can catch up to where we are at this moment. We've been tracing this story of, of Jacob. Jacob was a man who had many sons and his sons were plagued with all kinds of dysfunction, distrust, and hatred for one another. Well, not so much one another, really just for one. They really hated Joseph. They all really hated Joseph. They were agreed on that. In a family that couldn't agree on much else, they could all agree that the brothers hated Joseph. And so they decided that they would kill, his bro kill their brother Joseph and instead at the last moment realize that it's better to have a little coin in your pocket than the guilt of you know, murder on your heart. So we'll just sell him off into slavery. And off into slavery, Jake, Joseph is sold. Joseph is taken down to the land of Egypt. He's there sold to a, 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 an Egyptian official. And very quickly, he rises to very important role as the chief administrator of this official's home. Well, he's falsely accused, and he's falsely imprisoned, thrown into jail and seemingly forgotten. But even there, God is with him, and God continues to bless Joseph's life, and Joseph continues to live a life of integrity. And he rises to a place of importance even in the prison, where the warden gives him authority and responsibility over the other prisoners. Until finally the day comes when God allows him to interpret a dream for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is so impressed with this man Joseph and recognizes that God's hand is on him. And he appoints him to a very important place in the country. 
during a time of great famine when the nation of Israel and all the surrounding countries were dealing with a great um, lack of grain. They were, there was a famine that was causing starvation. Joseph's leadership under God's direction allows Egypt to do so well that not only do they take care of their own people, but they sell grain to the surrounding countryside of which comes his own brothers. And there his brothers come to buy grain from Joseph, not even knowing that it's him. He's changed a lot in these many, many years. and They don't know that it's him, and so he sells them grain, helps his family, and eventually invites his whole family to come and live with him in Egypt, which they do. And the reuniting of the family is a beautiful story. Well, Jacob, the elderly father, is now at the end of his life, and as we've seen in this opening verses from chapter 50, has, has passed on. And the story that ensues from here is the funeral for their great father, for Jacob, and how it is impacted from three unique perspectives. This morning, we're going to look at the tomb of Jacob from the perspective of the Egyptians. Secondly, we're going to look at the tomb of Jacob from the perspective of the Canaanites. And third, metaphorically, we're going to look at the tomb of Jacob from the eyes of Jacob. And we're going to see how this one story is seen three very different ways with three very different applications. And I think you'll agree with me that it has some remarkably modern um, and, and very practical ways for us to learn from this story this morning. First of all, let's start by looking at this perspective from the eyes of the Egyptians. From the eyes of the Egyptians. Now, you'll remember that Joseph, who was sold into slavery and rose to prominence in Pharaoh's household, has really impacted the nation of Egypt. The nation of Egypt has come to know him as a competent leader. They've come to know him as a man of integrity. They've, they've come to know him as a, a man who's respected and admired. But most of all, above all, they've come to know him as a man in whom God is at work. What an important and powerful thing. That to a whole nation of people, they could look at Joseph and they could see God is at work in this man's life. And that's saying something because Egypt was about as pagan a nation as you could possibly find at this time given over completely to idolatrous worship with, with no semblance of an understanding of or even recognition desire of a relationship with God. But interestingly, here they are now. All the who's who of Egypt, the, the courtiers, the rulers, the administrators, the officials, all the high-ranking people in Egypt are now bowing down in reverence to the God of Jacob, the God of Joseph. The God to whom they are mourning is the God that wanted to be known by them. They knew something about God. Following the story of Joseph, they knew that, that God could interpret dreams. Uh, they knew that God could provide for his servants. They knew that God could provide wisdom and, and direction to those who loved him. But they really didn't have a full grasp of who God was. But what they did have was a really good example of how God lives in the life of a person. You see, in a very real way, they saw God in Joseph. They saw God at work in Joseph's life. They saw the providential care that God gave to Joseph. They saw the wisdom that they embodied, that Joseph embodied because of God. They were able to see God by seeing Joseph. This is something that brings us back to a, a Scottralism that we use here all the time. Scott Cottrell always just 
reiterates to us so often at camp, when we're all together at camp, this little phrase, every morning when we have staff meeting, every afternoon after lunch, we come together and we say this with one another, let them see him in us. You've heard me say that a million times from this, from this very pulpit. But that's exactly what the nation of Israel did with Joseph. They saw God in him. You know, they had no, no real connection to Jacob at all. They had no affiliation with Jacob. Jacob was a relative newcomer to their country who lived far off in the land of Goshen in a part of the country all by himself with no connection with the Egyptian people. But they loved Joseph so much that they would go on this enormous display of kindness and compassion for Joseph's family. Let me just real quickly cap this off for you because this is an amazing picture. I don't know what your picture is of this caravan that left Egypt, but this caravan that left Egypt would have been an unprecedented, amazing display of pomp and circumstance and, and prestige and prominence. It was truly a who's who of everything, the everything that offered uh, Egypt offered. These were the, the highest ranking officials. These were the, the celebrities of the land. These were, um, they, they, they had a, a huge collection. It says the chariots went with them. That was a special select group of the army that was the highest trained and the most important. It was a, it was a, a parade of enormous magnitude. They would have brought gifts and tribute that they would have given to jo Joseph and his family in recognition of Jacob. This was the highest of the highest celebrity. These were the, the most profound. This was a massive caravan. And this caravan would have gone through a war-torn country that would have taken a long, long time to do this. It was, it was really dangerous. It was a really dangerous trip. I mean, we're talking about a, a trip that would have taken many, many days just to get there. Not to mention the fact that it would have taken many, many days to get back carrying everything you had with you. In fact, one... Uh, one study of this said that uh, the average caravan would move about 20 kilometers a day. I don't even know what a kilometer is. I'm not in Europe. I don't know what that even means. But I know it's not very far. So this travel that they would have taken would have probably taken about 21 days one way. It says they got there and they mourned for seven days. And then they turned around and came 21 days back. And these caravans were so big. Ancient sources talk about that there would be a time that a caravan would come and would enter the city. And the caravan would be so long that it would enter the city all that day, all that night, and into the next day before the entire caravan got there because it was so long. We're talking about a massive, massive funeral procession. Unbelievable. This would have been truly a funeral fit for a king. But they did it for a man they didn't even know. They did it for a guy they didn't have any connection to. Why on earth would the nation of Egypt come to a stop to honor somebody for 70 days, to travel 21 days, to honor him for 7 days, to travel back 21 days? Why would they do Because one man so embodied God before an entire nation that the people saw God in him. That's a perspective. Second perspective, the eyes of the Canaanites. The eyes of the Canaanites. They travel from Egypt and they come back to the land of Canaan. This was the land of promise. This was the land that Abraham was told. Remember way back in the beginning of our stories? Abraham was told by God, hey, get up, package up all your stuff, 
We're going to go somewhere. I'm not going to tell you where yet, but when you get there, I'll tell you, and that's going to be your promised land. This is it. This is their promised land. This is the place of the origination. This is the place of the settling. This is the place that they used to live at, and they're going to live at again. What about the people that lived there? What do you do if you're sitting around in Canaan one day, and you see this caravan that's three days long traveling into your city? And suddenly they drop camp and they, they create the biggest funeral that the world has known in that part of the world forever. Chapter 50, verse 11. When the Canaanites who lived in the land saw them mourning at the threshing floor of Atad on the other side of the Jordan, they said, this is a very sad occasion for the Egyptians. Who are these Canaanites? Well, obviously they're the residents of Canaan. But... More importantly for our purposes, they also, like the Egyptians, are a pagan people. They're not a people that knows and pursues a relationship with the one true God. They are a people, a warrior people. They are a present and future enemy of God's people. And they are a continual stumbling block. We don't know much about them. But in this moment, what they are is a curious onlooker. What's going on here? What a perplexing theme. What an odd sight. Here I have this caravan that's filled with treasure and tribute. Here I have a caravan that's made up of the who's who of Egyptian elite. And they're honoring a Hebrew? Why in the world would this huge number of Egyptian people with great treasure come and honor a Hebrew people all the way out here? And it becomes very perplexing, very confusing. You know, with all of this pomp and circumstance, with all of this display of prominence, what exactly is going on here? The only thing they could deduce was, this must have been a really important event. This, this must be really, really important. This is the who's who, the richest of the richest, the, the, the greatest of the wealth of the treasure. This is the highest uh, of the army's um, you know, ceremonial troop. Something very important is going on here. And so let me, let's look at this. Even though they didn't know Jacob, they knew Jacob must have been important to them. It reminds me of some other funerals we have in the Bible. There are some other funerals that we express the same kind of thing, where we don't really know who the funeral is for, and the people around don't know who the funeral is for, but just by the emotion, just by the passion, just by the sorrow, everybody sees that procession and goes, wait a minute, that's something, that's something, that's something very, very special. We see that when we get to Acts chapter 9. There was a woman named Tabitha, also called Dorcas. And, and even though the person who's witnessing this funeral doesn't know Dorcas at all, they're told about all the good that she does, and it becomes a heartbreaking thing. We're introduced to, in Luke chapter 7, the widow's son. And even though we as the audience don't know the widow's son, we don't know anything about the story, we can't help but be heartbroken because we see the heartbreak that's going on. You've been there and you've seen that. You've been, a, a, you've been privy to experiences where you see just by the heartbreak, just by the emotion, just by the passion that somebody has for somebody else, that you look and go, I don't know this person, but you know what? That person loved this person. I've been privileged to stand before crowds at funerals many, many times. And on occasion, I've 
presided over a funeral of whom I did not know, the person who passed. But I've stood before rooms of people that I did not know, speaking on behalf of a person that I did not know, and finding myself with a tear in my eye because of what I see in their reaction. How deeply moved they were for somebody I didn't know, and it makes me just admire this person who I never even met. The Canaanites say, we don't, know, we don't know Jacob. But you know what? I'm impressed by the passion, the zeal, the sorrow that the Egyptians feel. And this is really confusing. Egyptians honoring a Hebrew in the middle of Canaan. Story three, Jacob as it were, metaphorically floating above and watching this scene unfold. Imagine how he must have been feeling. Imagine what he would have been thinking. Imagine what it would have been like for him to see and to experience that. Jo Jacob, Jacob, whose whole life has been filled with deceit and trickery and dishonesty, his life has just been a train wreck, a, a series of misadventures and, and terrible, terrible tragedies. He has been highly responsible for the discord and the dysfunction in his family. He, he, was, he was largely responsible. He was complicit in his, his brothers hating his sons, hating each other so much that they tried to kill each other. And yet as he witnesses this moment, and he sees these brothers who had hated each other come together in unity, how glorious that must have been for him to see how God had mended these wounds. It's interesting to think about it because this was probably, uh, there's no probably, this was clearly the largest funeral for any of the patriarchs. In fact, this funeral was so big and so grand that it would rival the funeral of most all of the kings that Israel and Judah would ever have. This is one of the greatest funeral scenes in the history of Jewish, uh, in, in Jewish history altogether. And it wasn't even done by the Jews. It was done by the Egyptians. And how deeply they mourned. You know, the same kind of ideas, the same language that's used to describe other funeral scenes is described here. The same language that would be used in Deuteronomy chapter 34 as the people mourned the death of Moses. How loved, beloved Moses was. That same language is used here that was used in Moses' funeral. It's the same language that was used as people mourned and wept over the death of Lazarus in John 11. It's the same depth of sorrow that the people felt in Acts chapter 8 when they talked about Stephen being stoned. It's the same heartbreak that was experienced in Numbers chapter 20 when Aaron died. Now, it's not my place to compare. And we shouldn't judge who's better and who's lesser in the kingdom. But you take Moses and Aaron and Lazarus and Stephen. And you take Jacob. And you can see that Jacob was awfully grateful for what he probably would consider a really undeserved send-off. Much more than he would have probably ever considered he deserved. Three very different perspectives. And very quickly, three very different lessons from those perspectives. What can we learn from the Egyptians? 
What can we learn from the people who were so impressed by Joseph, they could see God in Joseph, that even though they didn't know God, they wanted to know God. They didn't know God personally, but they said, if God has done this in your life, I want to know a God like that. I want to know a God who can do that in your life. I want to know a God who can be that transformative and that changing, and that overarchingly, overwhelmingly transformative in the life of a man. The tagline for this, our godly lives introduce the people in our lives to the God for whom we live. I know, that's a lot. Let me say it again. Our godly lives introduce the people in our lives to a God for whom we live. That's the application of Egypt. Joseph displayed God to them to such an extent that they wanted to know God. It was an irresistible attraction. An irresistible attraction. And a funeral can be an interesting place for an irresistible attraction. I'll tell you a quick personal story. Many years ago, my father-in-law, uh, Glenn, passed away after a long battle with cancer. And um, he passed away in Troy, Missouri, where Sue and I grew up. Many, many hours drive from Ohio. We were standing in the back of that uh, funeral home on the day of visitation. And uh, we were standing there around the casket receiving line, and I noticed in the back the door opens, and one of the elders and one of the deacons from the church that Sue and I were a part of in Columbus had shown up in Troy, Missouri. They had never met Glenn one time. Never once laid eyes on him. But they got in a car and they drove 14 hours round trip so they could spend seven minutes with us in a receiving line. So they could turn around and drive back, do that whole thing. You think that didn't leave an impression? They honored him without ever knowing him. That's a profound act. And in that same way, isn't that exactly what we see with the Egyptians? Them honoring a man that they did not even know. And how that was just attractive to everyone around them. What would make a people be like that? What, what would make a people be like that? An example of one man, Joseph, who displays God to a whole nation. That's an irresistible attraction. And my friends, that's what we're called to be. We're called to be that person. We're called to be that Joseph in the world, to live our lives in such a way that people look at us and go, wow, I'm not a part of that community, but I sure want to be. I, don't, I am not a part of that group, but I want to be, when I see this person, when I see you in my life, when I experience an interaction with you, I am so overwhelmed by the fact that I see God living in you that I just want to, I want to be a part of what you're a part of. The nation of Egypt wanted to be a part of what Joseph had. And it displayed an irresistible attraction to the world around us. Let your light so shine before men so they will see your good works and glorify your Father. Joseph's whole life was summarized by that phrase, and his impact was felt across an entire nation. My friends, that same mandate is given to me and you today, to live a life like that, and to present to the world an irresistible attraction of coming to know the God who transforms lives. Second application, the Canaanites. The Canaanites. This was a confounding situation. This was a head-scratcher. 
And I think this draws a great application for us because God's uh, people are a puzzle to the world. God's people are a mystery to the world. It's hard for God's people to be figured out in this world. In the same way that this parade of funeral by a bunch of Egyptians over a Hebrew in the middle of Canaan made no sense. But you know what's interesting about a puzzle is a puzzle just begs to be figured out. When you, when you hit a puzzle, a conundrum, some kind of a, a weird situation, there's something in your mind that just goes, I want to figure this out, I want to understand this, I want to make sense of this, I want to get to the bottom of this. And you know what, I think God places us as his people into a world to, well, to be a puzzle, to confound the world. What would make Nestor and Jim, my friends, the elder and deacon, what would make them do that? that it just doesn't make sense. That is confounding to me. Well, what would make a people do the things that these people do? What is it about this Christian community that would make them so giving and so generous and so loving that they make such an impact in this world? That just doesn't make sense. What about that first century church and how in the midst of great persecution they poured out into the community in generosity and love and support and compassion for everyone and people said that doesn't make sense. And you know what? Throughout the ages, God's people have continually been confounding the world and doing so in a way that makes people want to know more. So I ask you this morning, are you confounding the world in a good way? Are you confounding the world in a way that makes people say, I'm not a part of that group, but I sure want to know more about it. Number three, the eyes of Jacob. What can we learn from Jacob's situation? Well, the thing I'd like to leave you with from Jacob's situation is this. It's how God can 828 the broken relationships in your life and mine. You've heard me say that a lot. 828, Romans 828. We all know that God works together for good for those who love him. God's going to take things and he's going to move them around and he's going to make them work together for good. And when it comes to the broken relationships in our life, those broken relationships that we think there is no way this can possibly be mended. You can't get more broken than Joseph and his brothers who tried to kill him. And Jacob, metaphorically hovering over this funeral and watching his brothers weep in each other's arms and saying, only God could mend that. And guess what? God's still in the business of mending broken relationships. He's still in the business of bringing together distanced people. Communities are going to tear themselves apart like we saw in Galatians 5 last week with enmity, strife, jealousy, and outbursts of anger. That's how it's going to work. And into each one of these situations, we continue to see God pouring healing and mending into relationships that are broken. As Jacob looked down, he saw out of the brokenness his family reunited to do the will of his father. Jacob said, here's what I want you to do. And he saw his boys come together and do what he was asked what they were asked to do by their dad. And you know what? Today we still serve a God who looks down into our brokenness and he sees a people who are being reunited to do the Father's will. Those three lessons, I think, offer us some really good application that we are to be irresistible in our attraction to the world, that we're being downright confounding in our devotion to Christ. And that we be looking for ways for God to mend even the most broken and desperate of situations and relationships of which we're a part. Binding us together for his purpose so we can do his will. 
You know, this morning, it brings me great joy to be a part of this family of believers. It brings me great joy to be able to know that we together have been given an opportunity by God to make an impact in this community. But the first step in any impact in the community begins with us. Our journey with Jesus begins with us taking on this first step. And maybe it is that you're 20 years into your relationship, your walk with Jesus is one of many, many miles and many, many years. We want you to know that we come alongside you in that journey. We want to support you any way that we can. And this morning, if you're dealing with, with disappointment or frustration, if you're dealing with, with need in your life, we don't want you to walk on that journey by yourself. We want to come alongside you. We want to pray with you. We want to help you. We want to support you. We want to be a brother or sister to you in any way that we can. Most especially, if you've never begun that journey with Jesus, we want to help you take that first step today. We'd love to introduce you to the, the son who loved you so much that he gave his own life to pay for your sins on a cross so that you could join him in baptism and have those sins cleansed and forgiven to walk in newness of life with him forevermore. This morning, whatever your need and however we can be of service, we want you to know that we stand in the back of this room and would love to help you. Please make that known as we stand together and we conclude in song.